I have a dream that all men are created equal. Welcome back to your story. This is episode nine. Just a quick reminder that there is a site attached to this podcast, yourstorypodcast.com. You can leave a comment or get the email link so you can bounce something to me if you'd like. I'd love to hear from you. You can also get the subscription feeds, iTunes links, all the usual sort of stuff. There's also links to music, which I'm getting from iota Promonet these days. If you like what you hear, I'd ask you to consider buying if you purchase something off them because you like their music that supports the artists the artists are supporting me by allowing me to use their music to make this podcast a little bit more interesting it's all good isn't it for everybody last year i went on a bicycle ride with bicycle new south wales a long ride over about nine days 600 kilometers it's basically a whole day it's not particularly hard work but at the end of each day you get to meet some very cool people and you sit around have a few drinks and a meal and just talk about life in general and find out what people are up to I originally was planning on starting this podcast from there. I, was, I took a small recorder with me, but unfortunately it didn't work and I had to let it go. But I did meet some interesting people and some people I would like to still catch up with in time and maybe get them on the show. One of those people was Matt Collins. Matt's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and when I was in Sydney recently, I contacted him and said, hey Matt, let's get you on the show. I want to talk to you about a few things about your work and how you got into it and how you've managed to be quite successful at being a journalist at a relatively young age and with a major newspaper too you know he's this Sydney Morning Herald's one of the major newspapers in Australia and I wanted to talk about the journalistic ethic and the way they deal with some of the more complicated issues and also I wanted to discuss with him how he sees the new introduction of all this new media and the way that's going to impact on the old publishing houses and like radio television and uh, newspapers. So we had a quite a long discussion. This is actually a very long episode. I think it runs about an hour. So uh, I hope you enjoy. This is Matt's story. Uh, Monday the 11th of February 2008. Sitting here with Matt Collins. Matt's a, uh, a chap I met on a, a long bike ride last year, last March, and we got on really well. We had far too many beers a couple of nights and knocked around with some lovely people. And the reason I'm called, asked Matt to come on the show is that He's a journo, and I don't know too many journos. Uh, I don't know any journos that have reached the level of professionalism that you have. Sure, you may not be a pilger, maybe not yet, but you, um, you're definitely slowly climbing the ladder at a relatively young age, and that's why I've invited you on the show, Matt. So, welcome, Matt. Thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, good. So, uh, fill, us, fill us in on, on what you do for work to start with and then we might creep around your life and see what else we can dig up on you. Excellent. Okay, what do you do? What's, what's work? You, you work for the Sydney Morning Herald? Yes, uh, I'm a sub-editor on the Sydney Morning Herald sections desk, which means I, uh, you've got the news section of the paper and the sport and business sections and then there are supplements, I guess. So things in, uh, we work on Good Living, which is a kind of a food and, and wine section. I work on Domain, which is real estate. Uh, and drive, which is obviously motoring, and uh, but yes, yeah, so a sub editor. So I, I kind of. So do you actually manage one of those sections, or do you manage all of the sections? And there's another sub sub editor who looks after each of those sections. I um, I am uh, what's I'm a deputy chief sub editor. So there's a chief sub editor who oversees. They love their hierarchy, don't oh, they? Oh, they do. And there's <laughs> just a couple of double negatives in my title, which makes it awfully difficult to describe sometimes. But uh, it's we have uh, a group of about 20, I think, sub-editors that look after all the Herald sections, right. and their manager is the chief sub-editor of Herald sections. 
and I'm his deputy. And so, yeah, we're responsible for the production of all those sections and making sure that they meet their respective deadlines. And, right. Um, and what is a deadline? Like, I've noticed that, say, the uh, food and healthy lifestyle mm. things, you know, th there's no reason why they have to be printed the night before. Oh, absolutely. They're not, most of them. Right. Yeah. How, how, what's, how early are they printed? I'm sure the journalistic work's going on for weeks before they're printed. Yeah. But, you know, like, when are they printed in regards to when they're put out in the streets? Is oh. it several days or is it weeks? Generally, it's just a couple of days. Okay. Uh, I imagine the real estate one is one of the ones that get printed last. Absolutely. Generally, I would say we've got lead time of, of literally a couple of days. So, because the way these things run, uh, you... Sorry, I'm just having a bit of a mental blank there. Um, the, the paper's printing constantly. Our presses are, are running, I don't think, quite 24 hours a day. But um, with the newspaper going for a large chunk of, of the night, the news section going uh, of a night time, during the day they're, they're printing other sections of the paper. Right, so they're so, printing the car section or yeah. the healthy lifestyle section during the day. That's right. And early uh, evening they print the news. Yeah, and right. so we, um, we might do, uh, you know... Uh, say a career section is ready three days before it's printed, another section maybe uh, we may handle um, the day before but it's handled so it's ready to go mid-afternoon as opposed to the rest of the paper going that night. Right. So it's all a matter of kind of logistically ensuring um, and we work with other departments in terms of you know, printers and... How many people does it take to put out the Sydney Morning Herald? Morning Herald? And it's the, is it the last broadsheet in Australia? No, I, I met... Melbourne. What's the Melbourne page? Now, the Age is a broadsheet. Uh, the Australian, owned by Murdoch, right. is, is still a broadsheet. Right. But they're, we're, yeah, those three are, are the they're last. the only broadsheets yeah. left? Right. Actually, I'm just trying to think I, whether the West Australian was for a long time a broadsheet, but I, don't, I think it's a tabloid I don't know. now. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, certainly those three are, are the last, if not among the last. And... How many yeah. people, sorry, the question was, how many people work for the Herald? To be honest, I, I Would it be thousands? Know. It would be in the thousands. Really? Certainly, um... We, certainly, up, at least up around 1,500, I would suggest, we're okay. working on the Herald at any given point. Across, um... Uh, certainly, you know, journalism, advertising, uh... Then we share, uh other departments across titles because Fairfax also does the Fin Review yeah. um, and, um, you know, a couple of magazines and things like that. So, I mean, we share staff with those other areas um, on, in some departments like promotions and things like that and the Sun Herald and... Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of people there. We've just moved into new offices and it's the first time that I think that most of... Uh, if you like, the front-end staff, because our printers are out uh, out west, but um, most of our kind of editorial and, and advertising staff are in this one location, mm. and it's amazing to finally get an idea of how many people, people do work for the organisation. Yeah, yeah. So where you are as... What, what are you, Deputy Chief Sub-Editor? Yes. <laughs> um, as that, how many levels are there above you? Oh, plenty. Um, I mean, I guess... Um, we have, from an editorial perspective, we have uh, a managing editor, and I'm not sure exactly, this is one of those things too, you're never quite sure uh, how... Because you do have a chief were. editor, or what well, well, we have the editor of the paper, is a um, guy called Alan Oakley, and he's responsible for the general direction of the whole of the paper. Right. Um, he's the top dog until you start moving to the, the owner. Oh, yes, oh, certainly until, yeah, we've got... Um, we're a public company, so we've got a, the board is effectively the owner as such. But yeah, they, he is um, he is the bloke that makes all the the serious kind of uh, decisions about the everything from what goes on the front page on a given day to oh, the, the direction of the paper. And so you can say we're going tabloid. Uh, that would be, I'd imagine, something done in consultation with the board. board but yeah. um, but he's got and, that and the sort general of manager, and yeah, oh, I mean, he's he would be instrumental in that decision. Sure. Um, if not, the person kind of um, ultimately 
making that a major jump. change. Yeah. But he actually affects the day-to-day -day front page stuff. You know, oh, like we're going to put Afghanistan on there instead of a blonde. Yeah. Yeah, you know, he'll make exactly. that decision. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's a job of. Uh, I would imagine overwhelming responsibility uh, from my perspective. Would you ever want it? No, I don't. I, Do you have that aspiration for glory? Oh, look, I, I've always had this idea that I want to do well in my career, but I've never had any real idea of what constitutes that, and certainly what I'm doing now probably exceeds any ambition I had for a long time. So how'd you get here? Well... I have heard you tell me last year when mm. we met that you did a lot of work in the country yeah. and suburban papers and you sort of clawed your way up through the, mm. the lesser ranks. I think I'd probably describe it as a series of happy accidents more than anything Are you else. a trained journalist? Uh, well, did trained in, in the classic sense almost. Of uh, I started as an 18-year-old fresh out of school and did a cadetship, which is something that... With a newspaper? Mm. Yeah, that is a, the classic old way, yeah. isn't it? And it's quite a rare thing and, and certainly in this day and age... Um, there are very few journalists coming into the, the, I was going to say profession, but I think technically we're still a trade. Um, but yeah, I um, the printers is a trade, but I thought journalists would be a profession. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, but uh, I think uh, we, yeah, um, there are very few people that have, have just come straight to cadetships these days. Most people have uh, degrees, and it's a, it's a remarkable thing because. A, a, a lot of the people I grew up with um, were, you know, journos who who did that, had that background, and I think some of the some of the best journos I've worked with are people that didn't uh, were their formal education didn't even reach year twelve a lot right. of the time. What does make it? What makes a good journo? In your opinion, because there's a lot of people out there who'd like to think they're a good journal, oh, and they out there doing the yada yada yada. But the reality is, you know, somebody creeps in there and does amazing work may not fit that bill. What's a good journal? To my way of thinking, in terms of somebody who is a, an interviewer and a writer or presenter as a journalist, I think the best are people who can summon a, you know, a lot of empathy with their subjects, even in circumstances where the person may not be a terribly likeable character. You know, a journalist's job is to facilitate understanding, I guess, and um, you know, somebody who can know the, the right questions to ask, know, know the times to be silent in a lot of ways too, I think, to allow uh, people to respond and also to Yes, some of the, one journal I remember working with was had this colossal memory, and would, he interviewed a, a lot of politicians over the years, and he was able to draw on this memory um, and to pin people down to things that they'd said years before. Um, and, and to especially just, politicians who thought to change their mind depending on the how the surf's running that day. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I remember actually one person I heard him have the phone conversation with once was John Howard when he was opposition leader in, in, the, in the early 90s. And it was uh, literally I heard him say, well, Mr Howard, I remember you saying in 1985 that... Yeah, and he then proceeded to kind of really drive a nail into Howard and I just remember thinking, how, how does somebody retain that? You know? So I think a, certainly somebody who's got that mind in terms of, um, and it doesn't necessarily, it can come from formal education, but um, just who has that ability to re retain knowledge, use it in appropriate circumstances and, and gain that empathy with a subject. How do you do that? How do you gain that em empathy with subject? I think the real key to that is, is the personality. And I think that's why journalism tends to attract people who are quite gregarious. Um, you know, I think it's very hard to be an introverted and good journalist. I mean, I've, I've met a couple who are quite introverted and, and are still good journalists, but I think that requires a, a fighting of their own character to... to um, to do what's necessary to get the job done. But I think you know, that is something you really can't learn. 
you've got to, that's got to be something that's in you as a either biology or nurture as, as a kid. Um, Can you be a good journalist and be biased? Do you have to? Can you be a good journalist and be neutral? I think which is the best way to be a good journalist? I would always argue, and the, the best way to be a journalist is to be, if not, if you aren't actually neutral, is to try to achieve that neutrality in the nature of the questions you ask. And certainly, you know, in Australia, most journalists are bound by the code of ethics by the by our union, which says that you know they, we we have to strive towards that neutrality. I think it's possible to be a good journalist and and be biased. I don't think it's possible to be a great journalist and be biased. I mean, right. a, a person you raised earlier was um, was Pilger, and here is somebody who he is a. Well, I might have to reassess my what I've just said a little bit, but Pilger is a great journalist, but he is somebody who operates from a specific point of view. So there is a bias there. Mm, yeah, he's always mm. quite biased. Yeah. He's always about cutting down people who have done wrong. That's right. You know? And certainly, I think, good, certainly a lot of good journalism is about that. Um, whether I agree with Pilger all the time, you know, I, I wouldn't. But certainly he is somebody who is, he has a bias, he operates... But I guess, too, the other thing about that is Pilger's open about that. I think if you are going to adopt that style to your journalism, then you have to be open about that up, up front. Is he a true journal or is he more like a documentary maker? Um, documenting, even if it's in a written form, documenting his point of view and the way he sees something rather than going out there and getting an, a neutral perspective of it and sh holding it up as in a frame to us, the audience. Well, you know, I do see a difference. There is a difference, I guess. Uh, I think, though, they're, they're, they're two very similar traditions. And certainly Pilger's, Pilger's work as a documentary maker uh, comes from his background as a journalist. Um, and so it's certainly informed by journalism, I guess. But, yeah, you're right. He's, he's, um, what he's doing now is, is a different type of information. But I think, uh, just addressing your earlier question, though, is that, you know, there is always the interesting thing, and there are a lot of good journos, particularly at, in, at the ABC, I think, and... Um, one particularly who has always has often been accused of, of bias is Kerry O'Brien mm. on the New South Wales 7:30 report. And realistically, in terms of his journalism, I don't think he is biased. But what he does is that he tries to nail down whoever is in power at a time. And you know, there have been plenty of people when Keating was in power. Keating would often say that the ABC was biased against him. Yeah. And which is perfect. Which when, when they're being accused of being biased by both parties, you know, they've got that's it right. right. And I think the, the the point becomes is that they're not biased against a, a specific party, but they're biased against power. And I think essentially a lot of the time that's what journalism has to do. It has to look not, not necessarily bias is a, perhaps a bad word in that context, but it has to be ultimately questioning. Yeah those in power yeah. and calling them to account because that's journalism's job. Well, that's right. Does journalism ever um, compliment? You know, like, would they turn around and say, write a piece about how good, you know, ask the questions and promote how good a new rail system that's going in or a new um, energy efficient, you know, supplement, whatever, you know, a positive spin rather than a negative spin? Well, certainly that can be done. And but does it happen? It does happen. I mean, the, the Herald uh, very much, and other news organisations do it as well. It's probably best achieved in newspapers because there is the ability to put next to a story a piece by the same author as a comment piece or an analysis piece where it becomes obvious that this is different to the information being provided here. This is, you know, this is a different... This can be an argument for or against, yeah. or it can be an analysis of what this person sees as good or bad about a, a given thing. So that certainly in print, and this works in an online basis as well, that, that there is that possibility of saying, you know, here is a positive spin and here's why we think this is a good idea or here's why we think it's a bad idea. 
sort of thing. And, and it's important that we can, too, find... Media is often accused of, of focusing on the negative. I think we do focus on the positive quite a bit, but we're hamstrung by the fact that people more commonly want to know about the bad stuff. So what what's the instigator of that? Do people want the negativity or does the media supply the negativity and that's what the people feed on because that's all there is? That's a very tough question. I, and that's one I've actually been um, arguing with some friends which is recently. Which the chicken, which is the egg. Well, exactly. And the, the difficult part is to look at... Um, the argument that I had recently was with members of my family talking about the media and... Um, and more specifically the paparazzi in the case of somebody like Britney Spears, mm. which I think is, um, you know, some of the things that happen to somebody like Britney is uh, dreadful. But, um, and people that I've had these conversations with say to me, well, if you stop providing the um, that material, people will... You know, choose. You know, they they don't have a choice. But the thing is, you can't unilaterally say no because there will will always be someone who's prepared to cross that line. And the thing is that it's been shown quite comprehensively in recent years that that will sell. And what what's the business that this newspaper's in? Well, I mean, the Herald has a slightly different stance. I mean, we. Um, far less celebrity-driven than some sections of the media. And we're not alone in that. There are plenty, certainly, in, um, in print journalism that are not so focused on that aspect of our modern life. We certainly don't leave it alone. But uh, I, I think the Herald tries to walk that line of informing people about what they what they want to know and what they need to know. Yeah. And that is the crucial balance, especially yeah. for... But there's a market for that. The, and yeah. this is the point I'm making. You're in, basically, you're in the market of selling papers or magazines mm. or whatever, you know, and unless it sells, you can't survive. And it doesn't matter how damn good the journalism is, mm. you'll eventually go broke. Well, that's right. the bulletin. Well, After how, what, 100 and what years? Yeah, 130, 140 years. Yeah, they've closed the bulletin. It's an absolute mm. tragedy for Australian... It is. ...print heritage. Um, but... At the end of the day, if they can't fund it, there's no choice, is there, unless they keep it as a benevolency and they fund it from their other sources, which personally I think would have been a noble thing to do. Because, you know, so it's got to sell papers, and the Herald, maybe it doesn't do Britney's, mm. but it still does stuff that people are interested in, and that could be just life in Sydney, for mm. instance sake. So at the end of the day, it does come down to dollars, sadly. Well, it does. I mean, and that's, uh, that's something that's not... Uh, new in the media. I mean, that's something that's always been mm. the case. Um, Completely. I'd say when Archibald set up the bullet, and that was probably part, of, certainly what would have driven him in, at the time as well. Okay. But um, so Archibald, who started the bulletin, his Archibald Prize is named after. That's right. And the Archibald Fountain in uh, Hyde Park. Who Adam I was talking to yesterday said that he basically... Was it Adam or was it Dick? The, the other conversation I had a couple of days ago, basically yesterday, said that um, complete fruit when he when he died. He was in a mental asylum. Mm. Went completely stark, raving bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly wealthy man, though. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And as I seem to recall, I think it was Archibald, because I can't remember his first two names, but I think he, he invented a couple of names for himself, adopted... Or changed his name um, because he wanted to create a greater air of mystery about himself. Really? So he adopted French names, I think. Oh, okay. So Archibald's not good enough. It's pretty. Well, show no. He retained the Archibald, but his first, like his first two names, like his his given name and his middle name, right. he changed to kind of through a count or. Mm him or something yeah. in there, maybe. Oh, I don't think he did that, but I think he would have liked to have. But, um, yeah. So, um, you mentioned that journalism is all about having empathy, especially for the interview side mm. of things, which is a little bit akin to what we're doing right now. But that's only part of it, because I have plenty of people can sit down and draw empathy out of people mm. and get amazing answers. What about the other side, getting it out to yeah. the masses? Is there, is there a definite skill there? Oh, definitely, and I've got to say that that not all um, not all journalists too are are gifted at 
at both sides of, mm. of journalism. Well, that's what I'm thinking, mm. because it is a double-edged sword and both got to be sharp. Yeah, absolutely. I think people... There are many people who... Um, that I've worked with over the, the 18 years I've been working now, that um, some of whom are brilliant at getting a story out of out of a series of sources and and even distilling it enough into a story that everything that you need is is in it. But certainly I've I've worked with brilliant journalists who have not been terribly good writers. Right. And I've worked with um, in fact in, probably in my reporting days I would argue I was a much better writer than I was interviewer. Right. Um, do you call do you use the word investigator in the same place as interviewer? Or is that again separate? That, that I don't argue that's a, a separate thing again because there, there are journos who um, can interview a person and in, in relatively straightforward circumstances and get a good story in that situation. An investigative journalist um, probably requires or can require a different set of skills again right. in terms of um, you know, being able to ferret out from, from sources across the board and, and putting in the legwork in terms of um, you know, reading reams and reams of paper, in, especially in a modern investigative sense, and trying to call governments to account for bad, you know, decision making and things like that. Right. But um, when, say, so you get somebody who's say good at the interview, or good at the investigation, go, does all this legwork, gets all this information together, and then writes a pile of poo. Mm. What happens at that point? Are they still responsible for that and that, that it gets published like that or does it then go through a process of attrition with the editors where they cut and... Oh, look, yeah, it goes through the... It, and... it certainly goes through that process of attrition. So um, if, if you're a good investigator and interviewer, yeah. the story can still have legs because other people come in and save your bacon. Oh, uh, I wouldn't even say saving bacon. Nobody is... No journalist that I've, I've worked with, um, I would ever say the, the writing has been so rubbish that uh, it was unpublishable. Or certainly, you know, there's always been potential in that writing to produce a finished product. But certainly it, it may need a lot of work and, um, and there are people that... You know, going back a long way too, because this certainly happens you know, as you move up the chain. You're working at somebody like somewhere like the Herald. The, you know, certainly most people, or if not all of the people at the Herald, can produce writing that is of you know very high standard. It still may need work in that. Um, you know, then you get into areas such as style and you know what the, the paper's voice is in, in in that respect and how it addresses the world, I guess. But. Um, Certainly, I've worked with people where you know, a good story is there and you'd almost liken it to a rough diamond. A lot of polishing needs to be done to right. it. And the process usually works that there'll be a news editor or um, a chief of staff who might see that at first, do some work, try to improve it, try to ensure that the most exciting elements are up front um, at the top end of the story. And then it goes through the sub-editing process. So in terms of... You know, uh, somebody will then read it very closely, ensure that details are, uh, are correct, um, check grammar, syntax, spelling, and then there's another sub-editor. We, we then have check subs who will ensure that everything that's gone before has worked as it should. Um, so then not just the, the journalist, the, the writer can be called to account on something, but the previous sub-editor can also be called to account on you know, if a change has been made, why it's been made. Most of the time that works as a very coherent process where you know, sub-editor receives it, reads it, makes a few changes, passes it on the check-sub, check-sub might make a few more changes. Um, and it, it's a very consultative process, certainly at the Herald, where everything's done in consultation with the writer, the sub-editor, and so you kind of reach this point where the best possible outcome for the story in terms of accuracy and um, style and you know, readability, um, and essentially that's the, the ultimate judgement, is that, um, to make sure that the finished product can be easily understood and easily read and mm. understood by mm. the people. It's totally it explains audience. why so much of the writing is relatively easy to read, even fairly technical stuff, because it's been honed quite well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I try and do some writing myself, and I find it quite a struggle. 
It's because a few different people are getting in there and just polishing these well, facets. Well, that's right. Yeah. And it's certainly everybody um, I have ever seen who, who writes at all um, needs an editor of some sort because um, no matter how good a writer you are, I think you are always too close to the subject mm. uh, in, when it comes to judging your own writing. Yeah. And we, uh, even and, uh, part of that can be too that people will be too hard on their own writing. Uh, I've seen people, I've seen writers agonise. A few writers I've worked with over the years who will just agonise over the first sentence of the story. And everything that they do is, is fantastic. But there's that agonising over the process because they're not sure that what they'll commit to the page will be good enough. And well, that's a perfectionistic streak that I think everybody who creates anything can have a problem with. Oh, that's right. But... Um, yeah, ultimately, and that, I guess you're right. So, do you think do you think it's good having those checks and balances and those multiple people and the editors honing stuff? Absolutely, I think um, it, it becomes apparent very quickly um, uh, where I know certainly I'm breaking stories sometimes, um, and this is occasionally very true. Um, if you look across the board at the media on, in the online environment, that when you try to get something up as quickly as possible online or if it's a late-breaking story to get into the next day's paper, that if um, if you rush through these processes, um, you may still end up with a good product. In fact, you almost certainly will, but it may not be as good and there may be a handful of mistakes that may creep in because that process has been rushed or sure. there have been parts of the process skipped. Well, this is what I want to explore is um, um, what are the inherent dangers? Yeah, we've got to get another beer, right? <laughs> what, are, what are the inherent dangers of, of this new world we're moving into where this 17th century technology is being overwhelmed by the, the interweb? Mm. Where, you know, like, you know, here I am, I've got my own little blog where I put my personal ravings up, you know, mm. and try and make it succinct and clear and enjoyable mm. to people to read, but no editing going on, yeah. um, let alone a large commercial organisation like yours that have got an online presence. Mm. You know, what's the dangers here towards journalism? Oh, look, in in many respects, the, the interweb... I do love that term. I think it's it's great. It's so much better than the internet. Exactly. It? I love it. <laughs> but the, the real... Um, most of anything to do with the web is so exciting from a journalism point of view because... You don't um, feel threatened by it? Well, I mean, we're part of it, I guess, which... which um, and obviously, because it's such a, a massive beast, we're only a small part of it. But... Um, Effectively, that is going to be our environment as as journalists in the next, um, well, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, I mean, it, it bears its own threats in the commercial viability of, of news organisations. A la the Bulletin. A la the Bulletin. But um, certainly there are ways that newspapers... Um, I mean, it may be a point in the not-too-distant future where there is ne never again a newsprint version of a, of a newspaper. But... Certainly, we're almost in, a, in an enviable position compared to somebody like TV because we can add video and pictorial elements to an online presence that involves print uh, because we know print, um, so we know the written word. We can do that. Mm. Whereas a, a news organisation like Channel 9 is coming from the opposite perspective. And so it's probably more difficult to get that textual um, side of things right late in the game than it is to um, to get images right because, you know, anything from a, a video taken on a mobile can be all right in an internet context. So, um, yeah, I, we... It certainly has threats to us, but it's, it's a very exciting aspect of, of our work because they, I mean primarily too the thing for any journalist is immediacy and the one problem um, that newspapers have always had in relation to say the electronic media is that you know it it's at least you know a six hour turnaround for us to finish a newspaper from a journalist's point of view and it being on the streets 
whereas you know um, you can be uh, a text-based journalist on the web and have your story out there within half an hour. Mm. So, I mean, it's only bound by the fact that um, you can... How long it takes you to write the piece and how long... Well, have you heard about these um, the blogging journalists who go yeah. along to conferences and they're basically writing blogs as presentations are being written yeah. and Wi-Fiing it then and there and you're literally... The length of time it takes to write that sentence and press send mm. behind the action. Yeah. yeah. And in many ways that's very interesting too because... As far as wire services have always worked, that's actually um, quite an old way mm. of reporting in that um, wire services, it used to be always, you know, you would get two paragraphs at a time on a breaking story because somebody is sitting there and as soon as a development comes in, um, it would be on the wire. Right. Um, but, in f but I guess... It's just that step further where the wire services now, uh, the blogger essentially in this instance though, acting similarly to the way a wire service used to, is getting it out straight out to the market. Whereas for us it was always, in the past it was always, then we collate the story and get it out as soon as possible. Mm, yeah. So that, I mean that's a fascinating thing and that's, I mean it's brilliant. And this, the rise of so-called citizen journalism is is an amazing idea. And I think where, though, traditional news organisations will have a place in, in that environment is that with a, a citizen journalist, you don't necessarily know the, the biases of that person, or certainly not no. when you're first starting to pay attention to them. Um, so there will be a certain, always a certain place, I think, um, again to focusing on the traditional news organisations because people understand that um, yeah, the Herald is um, you know, a serious Fairfax is a serious news organisation yeah, it, it covers everything it covers the whole spectrum but you know, if you really want to find out about in depth serious analysis about what's going on in New South Wales you know, you'll look to the Herald so I think um, there might be New South Wales based bloggers that you want to read what they've got to say on an issue as well mm. but there will still be that place for somewhere like the Herald that will provide what people, that gives something that they can expect mm. The formal, almost mm. quantifiable, respected yeah. element. That's right. Until, of course, a citizen journalist rises up through the ranks, and undoubtedly they're on their way. Oh, absolutely. And I think. Um, there are, and there are plenty of um, celebrity bloggers out there mm. who have proved their worth, in, particularly in the tech industry. Mm. You know, they write good articles, and a lot of people are yeah. impressed with, so they're followed. You know, oh, and, that's right. And those people become quite powerful, and they become little media entities in their own right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The interesting thing, though, then, too, is because if people are doing that and that's... And blogging can be such an intensive process, I'd imagine, for these people who are, are doing that um, intense kind of... Um, the intense blogging that you see and kind of think, well, the, the challenge for them becomes much the same as the challenge for newspapers and, and other media organisations is how do you derive an income from it? And... Course. That's look, look what I'm doing. Well, that's right. Yeah, I'm, there's no income in this for me. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's that's the real um, challenge facing everybody on the on the net is really uh, how um, you know you do, it's the ultimate free exchange of ideas. But then to people have a right to be compensated for the work they do. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, for a lot of these citizen journalists, you know, that's it is work that they're doing. It mm -hmm. is. And it occupies... I mean, the, the other thing about it, too, is it probably occupies more of their time than a journalist who works in a traditional format because, you know, they... Journalists are renowned for working, you know, odd hours and, and long hours, but, you know, if you're a, a blogger or a citizen journalist, it's taking up almost your whole life. Mm. And you don't have the support system to support you. You don't mm. have all of the leads. You don't have the infrastructure behind That's you. You right. don't even have the desk with the computer on mm. it. You've got to fund it all yourself. That's right. Um, but at the same time, you have ultimate freedom. Exactly. You can take it wherever you want to go, and you don't have to answer to your editor. That's right. Or the board. Or but, yeah. but then the interesting thing from, from a, a journalist's point of view, well, certainly something that always strikes me, is that the one thing that, especially as a sub-editor, you're taught to keep an eye on is, is media law. And... Uh, 
um, it's it's a challenge for the media lawyers out there, but it's also, you know, we, there are so many things, there are only so many things that you can say on a specific subject, especially if it relates to the courts, um, that, yeah, a blogger may not know or understand, and they can find themselves in contempt of court or in a situation where they'd be very open to, to being sued, and that strikes me as the big danger for individuals. It's not, I, I think in terms of uh, freedom of speech, it's not much of an issue, but in terms of people putting themselves into situations where they could be in real trouble. Um, well, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like, I, um, I wonder about somebody, say, revealing the name of a minor, being mm. allowed to do it um, on their blog, and then that comes up and is this person a serious journalist, so therefore you can slap him with the, mm. um, you know, with those efficacy rules mm. when they're not a true journalist, because they're a citizen journalist, mm. you know? Like, are they, are they going to be hit with those restrictions? Yeah, I don't know, know if that's been tested in the courts yet. I don't think it really has, but I, I would suggest that it is, it is coming, because there will be a situation, I mean, we've had recently... Alan Jones has been trying to appeal a conviction he had for naming a minor. Um, yeah, but he's a formal journalist and a presenter and a... Mm. You know, but the, the thing is... when for it, an old media radio company. But when it comes to that, there's, there'll be no differentiation between the formal and the informal, as in the eyes of the law. Yeah, well, I can see the sense mm. in the eyes of the law, but... That what is media? You know, that's what you know. It almost comes down to that. You know, well, I put this out as an on an RSS feed, and mm. sure enough, it's new media. You know? mm. um, but I'm certainly not within the confines of the old paradigm in any way, shape, or form. So, do I have the same restrictions on me as the old media? Absolutely. That, that is something that certainly there have been discussion papers and, and, and analyses of, of that sort of thing. And realistically, and this is something that going back to very uh, an old way of thinking, but I was always taught as a young journalist, publication of a defamatory article can be something as simple as writing a letter. Um, because publication, as soon as it's written for viewing by anybody else is effectively publication. So, um, you know, you can be, you can defame somebody in an email. Mm. Um, and certainly that's not generally going to be an issue because it's it's a difficult thing for, for people to get hold of. But if you put something online that is um, defamatory and that person decides to take issue with it and they have an arguable case, I, it, it seems to me that there's not a whole lot to stop somebody suing them. Mm. Mm. And, it's a, and I, I, I've always understood if you're in a bar and you've got three, two people there with you and you start defaming somebody mm. and somebody else has overheard it, bang, you can go down for it also. But, but actually doing something that, say, um, breaks the law in regards to, say, the practices of a court, mm. you, know, um, you know, revealing information publicly... Mm. Um, I can see that they'd probably use the same line. Mm. Absolutely. Know, to get you. Mm. Yeah, and it's something, yeah, it's something I haven't considered. I don't know the laws. Yeah. Well, the, the one good aspect to that, though, is that then you should be, um, you would, uh, I'd imagine, be subject to the same defences under law. So, you know, uh, um, it's been a while since I've studied my media law courses, but... Um, you know, there's the concept of truth and, and public interest uh, for saying something defamatory. Uh, that doesn't it doesn't quite work that way with contempt of court. But I mean, if you can prove that something's true and you can prove that it is in the public's benefit to know that information, there's certainly well, you know, well then it's no longer defamation, is it? Well. Um, not really, no. Yeah, defamation by definition means that you're telling a falsehood. No, actually not. Is it? Because that's one of the interesting things about you can be found guilty of defaming somebody because defamation is literally just the degradation of their character. But you can... <laughs> but if it's true... Well, that's, that's the thing, is that you're still defaming them, but you have... Um, 
you have reasonable grounds for doing so. So, um, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I never realised that. Mm. Yeah. So, and certainly the way the law works at the moment, there have been instances, um, and again, I'm a little hazy on this at the moment, but certainly instances where people or media organisations have been found guilty of defaming, or they have been found to defame somebody, but they. Um, the grounds, their defence has been seen to be valid. So, um, yes, they've been defamed, but it was true. Um, it was in the public interest to know. So there's no penalty. Right, get over it. Mm, that's right. 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 OK. Let's get another beer. OK. We just got another fresh James Squire golden ale. Oh, yeah. A fine drop. A fine Absolutely. Drop. What are you looking forward to in your world? Like we haven't finished describing how you got here. Mm. So you, you went. You're a cadet journalist. Cadet journalist. I, I worked all over um, Western New South Wales uh, in Dubbo and, and Bathurst, um, two very interesting towns with uh, very good um, little newspapers and certainly great grounding for for a young journo to, because you you do everything you do everything from the, the local Stedford once a year to you know Dubbo show to local politics um, you know police rounds I, I was a police reporter for a long time in the bush and yeah, unfortunately a lot of the time that requires going to car accidents and things like that but um, sad but nothing exciting oh, either well I mean that is one of the tragic things about some journalism is that some of the most exciting stories to work on are the, some of the saddest things to, that you'll ever see and you'll ever ex experience or see other people go through. But um, so yeah, and then worked in, I worked in, um, and I worked in, in North Queensland for a while on the Mercury and Mackay and then... Um, and each time, were you just gaining experience or were you clawing your ladder up the hierarchical ladder? Uh, gradually clawing my way up the hierarchical ladder. I, I think um, I... Um, but certainly, the, at that point, it was mainly about experience. And I, I was effectively the editor of a, a, a regional Sunday paper when I was quite young, when I was about 24. 20, or 20, sorry, 22, 23. Um, and I wasn't even given the title editor. I was t named journalist in charge because I think you can pay a journalist in charge less than an editor. Right. Um, but so I had a lot of responsibility at quite a young age and probably didn't understand exactly the responsibility I had and, um, and certainly wasn't terribly well equipped for it at that point. But um, then moved into... Uh, suburban papers in Brisbane, uh, and then travelled the overseas. Murdoch. The Murdoch, yeah, yeah. Um, Quest newspapers. Yes, up there. yes, yes. And um, worked on the, well, the Southwest News and the Southern Star. And yeah, all. yeah, I know the papers. Yeah. Actually, yeah, they both three quarters advertising oh, for either yes. cars or real estate. Absolutely. Yeah, and a little bit about the local RSL. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you know, which kids um, won the. Um, local athletics and stuff like that hmm. and then I I just decided to go travelling for a couple of years I, I went and did the, the classic backpacker two year working holiday to the UK and got out of journalism completely for a couple of years. How long were you away? Two years, just, okay. oh, just over two years and then came back went, um, got back into um, uh, the suburban papers here in Sydney again owned by Murdoch um, Cumberland newspapers and and worked myself up quite quickly there. Within about three or four years, I was editing one of their papers, and at that point, I just thought I'd try to make the jump into the metros. But I did that by going to the Illawarra Mercury down at Wollongong and got a job down there. I'd spent about 14, 15 months working down there, and then an opportunity came up at the Herald. Right. And, um, and uh, I mean, my big dream had always been to work at, at Fairfax and work on the Herald itself. And, um, it's been, I've not had as much satisfaction in journalism ever. Just the standard of the work that I get to deal with, the standard, I think my, the standard of my work has improved dramatically. Oh, okay. That's and a positive thing to say. Oh, it really is. It's, um, so you've got a lot of confidence in the good quality end of journalism? 
Oh, yeah, sounds of it. very much so. Huh? I mean, it's something that always has to be worked on and protected as much as possible, and it's always that fight between the commercial aspect and, and the quality aspect. But I think certainly um, Fairfax uh, manages that very well um, and is certainly you know, better at it than other news organisations in the country. Which are the good organisations in Australia, do you think? Oh, look, radio, film and, uh, radio, TV and print. Well, I think print, Fairfax. I, mean, I think um, News Limited does very good work with the Australian, but the Australian's unique within their network of newspapers. I, I agree. It's the only one I buy mm. now. And... Um, but certainly in, in TV and radio, I think the ABC, you'd be hard-pressed to go, go past them. SBS as well. But, I mean, there are some very good news services in, on all the commercial networks. But um, I think really if you're talking the kind of the depth of analysis, um, a greater emphasis on ethical considerations in journalism, I think you're looking at, you know, uh, especially in the electronic media, the, you know, the SBS and ABC. Um, what do you th- what do you think of the attitude that some people in the new media, you know, the internet 2.0 world, would say about old media is dead? We're just watching it go through the final death throes over these next few years. Um, part of me gets quite defensive about that. But sure, get defensive. Come on. Oh well, give it to them. Here's your chance to actually tell a few of them because some of them, I know some of them do listen to this. Well, I think, I mean, in many respects, they're right. Or certainly, I mean, I think, as I said before, newspapers are in a unique position um, to move into the online environment and handle it very well. That's not to say um, uh, that we won't make missteps along the way. I mean... Certainly with the current generation of people we have who are, say, above 30, uh, which is... There is, I I think, a certain... um, uh, Again, almost specifically to print, there is something good about holding a tangible thing in your hand. That is going to disappear eventually. Um, I think there will be situations in the not-too-distant future, though, where there may not be a printed version of the paper during the week, but the Saturday edition of the paper may be printed because people like that going to a cafe and and um, and opening something up and, and flicking through it. I mean, that's not something that's going to last forever. Hmm. But um, So where w- how would old media merge with... He says, bring his hands together, blend with new media. Is it really like I keep hearing you talking about quality of journalism? Is that maybe the methodology, bringing quality journalism into new media in some way, shape, or form as an online experience? Well, I think your use of the word merger is good because I think ultimately, from from a newspaper's perspective, it will be a true merger in that we we will bring. Um, a, a rigour and focus on quality, but there are plenty of bloggers out there and citizen journalists that are that are producing quality stuff as well, and that is their interest. Um, but I think it would be literally, you know, we it would be a case of finding those people and drawing them to us, and there'd, there'd be a, a mutually beneficial relationship in that uh, we bring a traditional audience, and there's there's still you know people overseas. You know, when they want to find out what's happening in Australia, they will go to the Sydney Morning Herald website. So I think there is, um, as with anything, you know, the people will focus on what they know. They'll explore the new all the time, but they'll focus on what they know to a certain extent too. And I think that will bring some bloggers a, a wider audience and their involvement with a more traditional news media will bring a new audience to that organisation. So. Would, um, would you think that um, an organisation like the Herald you know, the big old media companies, do you reckon they would embrace having bloggers working for them? We, we certainly I have know you to. have blogs, yeah, but, we have but they're often the existing journalists having a blog, aren't they? They are in, in many instances. However, we actually have a few people who 
to the best of my knowledge, um, and I know I think a few other organisations have done this, where um, we actually have bloggers, the people who were blogging, and we have kind of adopted, if you will. Okay. Um, okay. So we, we've got both those situations. So you will recruit, recruit from the new media world? Well, somewhat. I think the, the benefit about a good news organisation in that respect is that people who run news organisations tend to be very good at identifying talent. And I think that we, that that the skill of those people in identifying talent can be transferred across into new media. And I think that, um, that those skills that have served very well in one environment will work quite well in, in the new environment. Right. And I think, um, it, again, because to the web is such a fast-moving beast and yeah, um, trends can and can move so quickly online. It's going to become a much more and catching those trends is going to be and catching those talents is going to be an infinitely tougher thing to do. If um, if you were if you came across a 16 or 17 year old out there who wanted to get into this world of journalism, what would you recommend to them? as a way of getting into it. That's something I haven't thought about for a while because I used to be asked that advice a lot of the time. But it's and a very so, different world in the last couple of years. Well, that's it exactly. And I'm not sure I've probably thought that through as much as I could. I mean, there are certainly things like um, Fairfax runs a uh, traineeship every year. And I think they've just recently broadened that and they're not just looking at people with degrees anymore. Um, certainly, I think a degree does give you a slightly better edge, but... A degree in anything? Well, I think, yes, in lots of ways. A degree in anything is, is at least a better starting point than, than nothing. But then, too, Fairfax, I think, has always been so good that it, it won't be blinded by the fact that somebody doesn't have a degree if there is a perceived talent there. And I know there are some people at Fairfax now who... In the last few years, they've, I think, hired a few people who have not gone to university and are 17, 18. And there was some, I mean, there's, that's the interesting thing, again, about the internet. I mean, if they've got a blog, that's something that will... If, if a 17-year-old's interested in getting into journalism and they've got a blog, that's going to be a, a bonus for them because the second they're doing that, they're honing their skills every time they write a piece. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that even with myself. Well, I'd yeah. imagine you would, because, I mean, yeah, anybody who's looking at it and reflecting on what they're doing will see at least elements of what perhaps they've not necessarily done wrong, but what they want to refine for yeah. the future. So I think um, writing a blog's certainly not a bad start if you're interested in um, being a journalist in the future. And if you're a 17-year-old, you could be writing it just about your own personal life and right. going on a scout camp or, yeah. you know, relationship dramas at school or whatever. Exactly, because, you know, all journalism is, is all it is. But journalism at its best is a way of understanding the world around us, I believe. And, um, you know, if you can show that you understand the world immediately around you as a kid... Um, yeah, and that at least shows the gift that you can then apply that to a, a different context in future. Yeah. And so, therefore, you know, that's possibly, you know, well, it is a, a great indicator of somebody who can then look at the world around them, ask the questions of that world and, and help the people that uh, read them or watch them um, reach their own understandings. And that's a very valuable thing. And I, I mean, for me... The ability to inform and, and, and have people understand what is happening in the world around them is the greatest aspect and fundamentally is the distillation of what journalism is all about. Beautifully, succinctly put. Where are you personally going to go with your career, do you think? Do you have any goals, aspirations? I'm, that's actually do, something I'm... Do you I'm fancy sitting on Rupert's throne, running this media empire, oh, encompassing yes. the world? The power would be marvellous. <laughs> Watch him become corrupted. <laughs> yes. Pay attention now, folks. I'll, because it can all come back and haunt me in ten years' time. That's right. This is going to be on the interweb somewhere. <laughs> I, I think um, that's actually something I'm trying to reassess at the moment because... Um, as I said earlier, my my ambition's always been a little bit on the vague side. You've done all right. Well, I, I've done 
I've been very lucky, I think. And I'm certainly in a situation I did not expect to find myself in. Uh, and I'm very grateful for, to a lot of people that have kind of made that possible for me and helped me to do that. Do you dream of getting here by a certain age? Well, this is the thing. If I'm going to be completely honest, my ambition at one point, for much of my life, was just to work on the Sydney Morning Herald. And <coughs> What age did you think you'd make it? I had... Probably as, as a kid, I really hoped I would have made it by 30. Right. I probably... That's because 30 is really old when you're well, 18. Yes, when you're 18. I mean, God, if I haven't done it by then, my life's not worth living. That's right, you know, like, bring, <laughs> bring on Logan's run, just vaporise me, Ooh. you know, it's all over. <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, I'll save a comment on that for after we stop recording, but... Um, <laughs> the, um, but certainly, uh, when I started working on The Herald, and I mean... I still have a lot to learn at, at Fairfax, I think, but um, and I have learnt a lot in the in the three years that I've been there. But I, there was this when I got into the position I'm in now. It was a very disconcerting experience because I had effectively exceeded my ambition. I, I realised the ambition to work at, at the Herald, and here was here I was stepping stepping up into a middle management role. I guess effectively, well, certainly lower lower end of middle management but um yeah found myself in that situation and it was quite to work on the hill was quite humbling to be put into any kind of leadership role was stunning so at the moment i'm trying to work out i mean there's certainly on a little bit of reflection there's much i can still do within the industry and it's just a matter of identifying that and working out how to how to do it so you're not quite sure yet? There not quite sure. Okay. I've got a, f a few I ideas, but they're very embryonic ideas. Okay. So Stay tuned. Absolutely. The story of Matt Collins is yet to be revealed. Oh, you're beautiful. <laughs> okay. Matt, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks for Appreciate it heaps. Let's go and have another beer and a meal. Oh, okay, marvellous. <laughs> thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Cheers. There are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.